Hey friends, Adam Hamilton is the senior pastor of a really big church in Kansas City. And he just wrote a book on fear. It's called Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. And I think you're really gonna find this conversation fascinating. It's really helpful and practical for anybody that would say that they struggle with fear. And I, man, I, that is one of the things that I see the most of in people. Uh, so without any further ado, let me introduce to you my new friend, the Reverend Adam Hamilton. Well, I am here with Adam Hamilton, and I've been looking forward to this conversation for a long time. Hi, Adam. How are you today? I'm doing great, Steve. Great to be with you today. Yeah, and we were just talking about... <laughs> Before we press record, both of us in both of our states, Minnesota and then over there in Kansas City, had snow yesterday, and it is April. Oh, we are sick of snow around here, I'm telling you. And, and we don't get the kind of snow you do, but uh, and we haven't had that much on the ground, but it's just been, like, I'm ready for sunshine. And, of course, Wednesday, it's supposed to be 75 here and sunny, so it's just the craziest it's been the craziest spring so far. Yeah, don't even tell me that, man. I, I think the twins, the Minnesota twins, set a record for the coldest, the coldest Major League Baseball game on Saturday or Sunday, maybe. Uh, so crazy. Okay. Uh, well, I'm going to get right into it, Adam. There's a lot of things I want to ask you. But the first thing is you've been a pastor for over 30 years. So could you talk a little bit about what has kept you in it? It's a long time. Yeah. It is a long time. And and uh, there are seasons where I think, gosh, you know, it'd be great to retire and just write books and speak in different places. And, and I know pastors have done that, but I love being with people and I love having the opportunity to shepherd them and care for them. And, you know, it's hard sometimes and there have been seasons that were particularly hard, but um, but I really love I love helping people come to know Christ. I love helping them grow deeper in their faith. I love challenging an entire congregation of people. Um, you know, regarding how we're going to live out our faith in the community and the world to have the world look different. Uh, this last weekend, we were, I had a guest speaker come in uh, that I interviewed for the sermon. Actually, he ended up just preaching or speaking most of it, but um, Clarence Jones, who was one of the few remaining members of Dr. King's inner circle. Yeah. And our aim was to, you know, this is a part of our emphasis on, on uh, racial justice in Kansas City. And I love the thought there were 16,000 plus people who heard the sermon on Sunday. And I think there's 16,000 people are in Kansas City, most of them in Kansas City, some online. And we have a chance to help challenge and inspire them to go change our community, to change our city uh, when it comes to racial justice and building relationships and, and tearing down walls and, you know, those kind of things. So, you know, leading people to faith, helping people. And, and we started the church for folks who were non-religious and nominally religious, thinking people who, for whatever reason, adopted out of church and God. And so it's been awesome to see that, you know, people's lives change. And they're going, for the first time, this makes sense to me. Or finally, I think I could become a Christian. Shepherding people, helping them grow deeper. But then that big piece of, hey, let's let's go change the world together. And I find that continues to make my heart beat fast, even in the seasons when I feel tired or worn out. Yeah, thanks for saying that. I, you know, I think there's so many, um, there's such an opportunity to burn out as a pastor. And so I, I'm, I'm always curious um, to people that have, that have made it more than 30 years. And it's fascinating that mission seems to be sort of at the top, at the, at the top of your list. And I love that you're using your platform to bring in people like Clarence Jones to uh, to invigorate people 
toward an issue that's so important still that we have so far to go with that. So that is is brilliant. Well, your recent book. Other things, Steve, before you, uh, it strikes me that for any of us, you know, you've been a pastor, you said 22 years, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. So for any of us figuring out what is the thing that you do that energizes you when, you know, there's going to, in ministry, there's going to be a lot of things that are de-energizing or, you know, just they drain you. But what is the thing that energizes you? And and so, you know, like for you, it may be this podcast, you know, that you get excited about that, or you've written a couple books now, you know, maybe the book writing, or, you know, for me, it's also speaking in, across the country on leadership. And I, I, when I get done doing that, I feel energized again. I'm like, hey, I had a chance to pour into these leaders and help them become better leaders. And sometimes when everything else is draining you, it's figuring out what are those two or three things that really make your heart beat fast and making sure you have time to do those because you uh, otherwise, you know, all the other things in ministry that drain you may not, uh, they may take over and there's no time left for the other. So yeah, I just say whoever your listeners are, no matter what they do, whether they're in full-time Christian ministry or they're business people or whatever, figuring out what are the things that make your heart beat fast and making sure you have included those as a part of your must do, you know, the the things you're definitely going to do every month. Uh, that help reinvigorate you. I just think that's critical. Sabbaticals are also important too. And I've had over the last 30 years taken three of those. And those were, you know, those filled my idea banks up and they, you know, recharged my mind and my heart. And so taking sabbaticals, I think are important as well. That's huge. That is so huge. And I think for me, as I think about it, definitely creativity is one of my things that, that I, that I have to do to, to stay alive. <laughs> and I, I even have this little phrase that I throw around, even people at the church. It's like, I have to be creative outside of the church. Cause I can't, I can't subject the congregation to every single one of my crazy ideas. Right. So, um, and, but I also think that for me anyway, those must do things change over time. So I think, yes. I don't know if it's been true for you, right? But like, so I have to continually uh, look at that and say, what are the things these days that are keeping my heart, that that are keeping my heart beating fast? Yep. Um, and man, sabbatical, I, I agree. Our our elders just, just granted a really generous sabbatical policy for us. We're a church plant, so we're just about four years old now. Mm-hmm. So um, man, I was really, really encouraged by that. That's awesome. We did the same thing when we, we started the church 28 years ago. And, and in year five or six, they developed a sabbatical policy that that was has been really important. And, and so much of what the church has become has uh, been a result of the church's granting me these sabbaticals. Um, so, you know, each time and, and typically for ours, it's been eight to maybe 10 weeks. I mean, I can take longer than that, but that's generally what I've done. And um, it has been, you know, it, it again brought I came back refreshed, renewed. They could tell they were like, wow, you know, you're a, you're a renewed preacher when you come back yeah. and you, you know, and, and, uh, but you've got to, even sabbaticals, you've got to figure out how to use it wisely. Otherwise I had one sabbatical leave where I, I think I came back more tired than, <laughs> and, and a little depressed because when I, because I, I'm always cramming my sabbatical leaves with, I'm working on books and I'm yeah. doing this. And, that. and, uh, when I came back, I think I was dis- depressed because, I realized I've just been gone for 10 weeks and I feel more tired than when I left. That's not a good thing. And I don't get another one of these for another seven years. So, right. <laughs> so managing yourself and your, and what you're doing on those is important too. You know, I got introduced to a sabbatical coach. So this guy's 65. He's helped a bunch of pastors. And so for mine coming up soon here, I, I'm going to be talking to him about, you know, sort of how to, 
Because I could see myself doing that too, just charging forward and then coming back <laughs> wiped yep. out. Exactly. Oh. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for that. That was that was a juicy little extra. Man, I really appreciate that. Sure. Um, well, your book that you just uh, released last month, it's called Unafraid, Living with Courage and Hope in Uncertain Times. And uh, so you did a survey of your congregation and 2,400 people participated and you found that 80%, 80% of them reported living with moderate or significant fear. So riff on that for a little bit, what you found among the different age groups and uh, what you did with that information. Yeah, absolutely. So we, uh, you know, we organized a survey. So 2016, we were recognizing fear was rising in our country. And in fact, the surveys, national surveys that were done, done at the time said that Americans were more afraid that year than they had been at any time since post 9-11, since yeah. just after 9-11. And a lot of it had to do with politics. Some of it had to do with, uh, you know, the news cycles and what was going on in the news. And, and so I was interested to see how fearful our own people were. So in the fall, uh, fall of 16, I think it was around November, we took, uh, took the survey and a couple of things that were interesting I, that I had not expected. One was that fear levels declined with age. So uh, even those who were over 75, 61% were living with moderate or significant levels of fear. So everybody's fearful. But I found when we looked at significant levels of fear, of those 18 to 35, 45% of them reported that they lived with significant levels of fear. And, uh, but when we got to those who were over 75, only 21%. So it dropped by more than half from those 18 to 35 to those over 75. And actually even those 60, 66 to 74 roughly half of what it was at 18 to 35. And so, so A, we found there was, uh, the younger you are, especially those under 50, there were significant levels of fear, um, but those decline over time. And I think that, as we tried to analyze that, it seemed as though the older you are, the more you realize that the things you're afraid of generally don't come to pass, or if they do come to pass, they're not as terrible as you thought they'd be. You yeah, somehow wow. survive them. So when you're younger, you you haven't had that kind of experience, but the older you get, the longer you live, the more you realize, you know what, I'm going to make it through this too. Somehow it's going to be okay. But we also noted that there was a um, difference in what people were afraid of, uh, those under 50 and those over 50. So we gave them 24 choices based on the surveys that had been done nationally on fear. And then we added a few of our own and then we gave an open-ended, you know, okay, what didn't we include? And we let people choose, I think it was three, it might've been as many as four or five. But um, for those under 50, the number one fear was personal failure. Uh, fear. Yeah. And, uh, and then next to that was disappointing others. And then uncertainty about the future, financial difficulties, and the death of a loved one. I was, you know, people were afraid of losing somebody, a parent or someone they loved. For those over 50, the, the answers were entirely different on the list. Now, you go down to the bottom, the next five down, they start to match up a little bit more. But uh, for those over 50, the direction of our country was the number one fear. Now, again, this was in the fall of 2016 before the election. So it okay. must have been uh, October. It was before the election. So you had uncertainty and you had um, – at that point, you had a large a large number of Republicans who were un, who were fearful about the direction of our country, and thinking that a Democrat or Democrat was going to get elected in November. Today, if we did the survey, my hunch is that we'd find a large number of Democrats fearful about the direction of our country, and the Republicans feeling like, well, I think it's going better. So it, a lot of that hinges on who's in the White House at a given time as to which party feels more fearful. But but that was the number one answer for those over 50. The second was finances for retirement, not having enough finances for retirement. And aging baby boomers 
And, uh, you know, many of them struggled with not putting aside enough for retirement. So this is a big concern for them. Aging uh, was number three. Loss of mental capacity or the loss of our memory uh, was number four. And number five was the fear of becoming dependent upon others. So you can see in those fears, you know, as you age, those kind of aging fears become much more prominent. Uh, whereas the earlier fears for those who are younger are much more the existential related to either careers or my, you know, personal place in life and what the future looks like. That is fascinating. Um, especially the differences between ages and some of those are predictable, but some of those aren't, I mean, the fear of failure, that, that, that's sort of, that was a surprising one. I mean, that, that shouldn't be, um, of course, everyone, uh, a lot of people fear failure, but so you have a, you have an acronym for fear that you, that you talk about. Uh, can you go through that and, uh, explain, um, why you chose to use an acronym? And I laugh because beforehand you're like, I don't really dig acronyms, but this was so juicy <laughs> that I had to use it. Well, yeah, you know, because acronyms, it can be kind of trite and feel like, uh, you know, it, it's, it's just seems like, oh, come on, give me a break. Yeah. But what I wanted was a way for people to remember the four steps. So I was and, and it hit me as I was working on these four steps. They were classic. I mean, throughout history, there have been four basic ways that human beings have dealt with their fears. And even to today, if you look at what therapists teach and, you know, how they try to help people dealing with anxiety and fear, they're, they're very, very similar. I mean, they're, they're basically the same things throughout time. And so it, it was as I began to put those together and I thought, what's a mnemonic device that will help people remember these four steps. And it, you know, it just hit me if I phrased them properly, it could, it could, uh, it would be easy to tie them together. So the word fear is what we used and, uh, facing your fears with a bias of hope is the first one. Mm. So the idea of facing your fears is often we tend to turn away from the things that make us afraid. And, uh, and I, I might just start off by saying, and fear is a good thing. Fear is fear is a gift from God. It's not a bad thing by itself. We don't want to be completely without fear, but you know, our fears emerge from our perceptions of the world around us, our perceptions of danger. There, our fears are shaped by information that we put into our minds uh, from what other people tell us, news sources, you know, politics, whatever. But all of this is information that we have that shapes whether we perceive danger or not. So fear is really about the perception of danger. Um, shaping, that's uh, shaped by information others give us. It's shaped by our life experiences. So things that hurt in the past, uh, whether it was our feelings got hurt in a situation or we physically were hurt or we were you know, in a, in a place where we feel threatened. Uh, that, so our memories of those experiences shape our fears. Um, our sensors, are, you know, we are hardwired with a system to lead us to fight or flight. And that also takes information data from our eyes, our ears, our sense of smell, our touch, our taste, and internal uh, sensors to tell us that there is a danger afoot. And then uh, our imagination, God gave us this wonderful capacity to imagine things we've not experienced, and no one's told us about that they could be fearful. So all of those things are meant to protect us. But most of the things that lead us to feel a measure of fear are not actually as dangerous as we think, or maybe not dangerous at all. So some things are, you hear a rattlesnake and you see it and you hear it rattling, you should be afraid. You don't <laughs> want to go mess with it or play with it. But a lot of other things are not as, as fearful as they seem, or we can live through them, or we might actually find uh, that there, you know, there might be a blessing somewhere in there. You know, so anyway, there's a lot of so this, this idea of facing our fears uh, with faith or with a bias of hope, 
means that instead of running away from or ignoring the thing that we're afraid of, we actually, you know, step towards it. And here I think about uh, Eleanor Roosevelt, something she once said. She wrote, you gain strength, courage, and confidence by every experience in which you really stop to look fear in the face. You're able to say to yourself, I live through this horror. I can take the next thing that comes along. And uh, when therapists talk about this, they talk about facing your fears and stepping towards them, taking baby steps towards the thing you're afraid of. And you conquer that baby step and you can take another step and you take another step. And that leads to what's called extinction. Uh, The extinguishing of fear comes when you actually test the waters. And one example I give in my book is my daughter chose to take skydiving lessons when she was in college, which did not make me happy when I found out about it. It She didn't tell me until after the fact, you know, but I said, what were you doing jumping out of an airplane? And she said, I just knew that I had a predisposition towards fear. And I thought if I did the thing that scared me the most, and that was like jumping out of an airplane. I mean, it's about the scariest thing I could think of. And if I could conquer that, then I could do anything. Wow. And she gave me this picture, you know, she sent me a picture of after her first skydive and she had this big smile on her face. And, and she said, it was as though I, I looked death in the face and said, not today. Yes. <laughs> and so I think, you know, this facing your fear with, with a bias of hope and, and the bias of hope says, you know, generally we're, we don't, the things that we're afraid of are not, they don't end up killing us. Somehow yeah. they're generally, it's going to be okay. So, uh, this is this idea of, uh, facing your fear with a bias of hope. And, and part of what I'd mention is before we go to the next one is that the, um, most things that you do in life that are most meaningful, that are the things that are most rewarding come with a measure of risk. So if you are risk avoidant because you're afraid of, say, failure or afraid of disappointing others or afraid of falling on your face or whatever it might be, then you're going to you're going to miss out on most of the best parts of life. And, you know, you're a new church planter and, and so am I. And I remember before we planted Church of the Resurrection, uh, I was, you know, I was pretty scared. I had people tell me it's going to it's not going to work. You're underfunded. You can't this. There's no way this is going to succeed. And these are all older, wiser pastors than I was. And I, I begin thinking, well, what if they're right? What if I do fail? And, and, uh, but then I thought, well, what's the worst thing that can happen? Yeah. You know, so yeah. I fail. So I'm, I'm going to go, you know, go p- pastor a church somewhere else. I'm going to do something else. But, but, uh, and you know, so, so that I think about marriage, I think about almost anything else worth worthwhile in my life came with a measure of risk. And I was afraid and I still faced my fears with a bias of hope as opposed to running away from them. Yeah. So that, that's the first one. The second is uh, examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. So the E in the fear acronym is examining your assumptions in the light of the facts. And there, therapists talk about this as cognitive restructuring. It's actually um, analyzing carefully, okay, I feel this fear, should I be afraid or not? And then questioning your thinking. And often we, we have a tendency to do what's called catastrophizing. That is, we we assume whatever outcome will be will be a catastrophe. We assume the worst instead of the best. We we take the most negative possible data, and, and unfortunately, so many of our fears come today from what other people tell us. So, and particularly the news media. Oh yeah. So today, the media are a whole. I mean, you know, they make money by selling advertisements. So they can charge more for advertisements if more people tune in. So the goal is to get people to tune in. Now, if the goal is to get people to tune in, people don't tune into news when the fireman rescues a cat from a tree, they turn into a new, into news because it's, uh, either salacious or it's, it's, it is unthinkable or it is, you know, horrible or, or it's just frightening. And I got to find out what happened there. And 
what it doesn't do, what the news doesn't do very well is tell us, uh, and by the way, you know, the old dictum, if it bleeds, it leads, you know, is sort of how it worked in the newspapers is how it works today. And and most people I know who are journalists say, we'd love to tell more happy stories, more good news stories. The problem is people don't tune in for that. Yeah. Yeah. So we tune in when there's been somebody who's shot five people somewhere or 25 people. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. And then we, we hear it over and over and over again, of course, across the course of that day. And we and then the news stories afterwards for the next week are still telling us about what happened in this situation. And what we have no capacity to do is to measure how frequent does that happen what is the statistical, is it an abnormality or is this the new norm? And so we begin to think, and especially if you put two or three things together over a couple of years, you begin to feel like this must be the new norm that yeah. all these can shootings I, are. Can I, can I give an example of that? This was several years ago, but I was having some symptoms that I was convinced was like, you know, I have cancer. Oh my, and I don't want to make a make light of that because that's a serious issue for many people. But I, I got to my doctor's office and I said, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm feeling and experiencing. I'm, I'm afraid I'm really, really sick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he honestly looked at me and he goes and he pulled out the actuarial tables and he goes, well, for a guy your age, this, you know, your your health level, the chances of you having cancer are less than like 0.0003%. So I'm going to do a little scan on you. <laughs> But you've been reading a little too much WebMD, you know, and exactly. um, that's it. That's it. And, and, then it, and then it just controls us. That's right. That's exactly right. And so and health and that's uh, I've got a chapter on that in the book, this very thing about <clears throat> cancer, uh, about Alzheimer's. So when you're over 40, you start worrying that you're maybe you have early onset Alzheimer's. When you look at the statistics, you realize that statistically it is it is a very it is so highly improbable that you have yeah. cancer as a young person. It's not that it doesn't happen. Right. And as right. pastors, of course, we see people who have cancer as young adults. But the likelihood is so small that, sure, go ahead and get it checked out if you're worried about it. But it is, uh, it's highly unlikely. And the same thing with early onset Alzheimer's. You know, so a, a lot of what we do is we, it, we go ahead and get the facts. We find out what are the facts about this. And an example of this is people are, are more frightened today than they've been in a long time of crime and violent crime. And, and that's partly because, again, the news is telling us these things are happening all the time. So you go, do this, uh, go to the FBI and look for their statistics on crime or go to the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And what you find is that violent crime is at, a, it's, at its lowest level as, it's been, as it has been since 1964. Wow. So that's the year I was born. And violent crime is at the same level it's been since 1964. But the perception among American people is that it's on the rise and it is something we should be afraid of. And so we sell more guns. We, we get more security systems because of this fear. Same thing with just crime as a, as a generic uh, category. We find that most forms of crime are down significantly, more than half or at least half since the early 1990s. But without knowing that information and all I get is my news feed, I'm pretty afraid that crime is on the rise and, you know, the country's going to hell in a handbasket. Right, right. Exactly. So, that, so that's the second one. Examine your assumptions in the light of the facts. The third one is to attack your anxieties with action. So it's, it's important to recognize that fear is meant to move us to action. But what often happens is we become, in our fear, we become paralyzed. So instead of taking action, like you took action to go to the doctor to check that out, and you were relieved by your action. Fear is meant to move us to action, to motivate us to action. But when we don't take action, we end up mulling over this uh, fear. We end up, you know, cogitating on it or, you know, uh, fixating on it. And so we become even more anxious 
but we didn't take action that might have helped us. And it's interesting when you take action, any kind of action to confront your fears, the action itself helps to dissipate the fear because fear, the fear mechanism was meant to move you to action. And so, um, so, you know, looking to see what, you know, what steps might I take to address my anxiety is really important. And interestingly, positive psychologists will talk about, um, you know, one of their prescriptions for dealing with anxiety is to help other people. And this is just so common sense and it comes straight out of the Bible. But when we, when we focus on helping other people, we find our own fears begin to dissipate. And one of the women, I, uh, this is not in the book, but a woman I was speaking to a few weeks ago for a sermon, um, she, I interviewed her because she was very involved in working with the homeless here in Kansas City and in serving in missions in South Africa. And so as we were talking, she said, you know, I struggle with anxiety and depression. Uh, and one of the things I've found is when I'm on a mission trip or when I'm serving the poor in Kansas City, I no longer feel depressed or anxious. Wow. That action addresses our anxiety. And, and one positive psychologist said, you know, it's, it's better than a bottle of pills is actually going to serve other people. Mm-hmm. So that's one example, but there's all kinds of other ways in which we, you know, if you get a bad health report, I, I got a bad health screening earlier this year, my numbers were not good. And, and so I thought I can just sit here and rest, you know, and live with that fear that I'm going to die a much earlier death. My, my age was my actual age, uh, compared with what my age was due to my health, you know, my health was, uh, it was not good. And so Anyway, I think my actual age is 53. It said I was 63. And that really bugged me. And I thought, okay, I got to do something about it. And when I began exercising and dieting and everything else, and suddenly the fear went away and I felt a ton better. Yeah. So, yeah. So, anyway, the last of the things uh, is to release your cares to God. And in this, you know, this sounds, I mean, our, we typically start here as pastors. And I think it's, it obviously is a really important point. But sometimes when we start at, we'll release your cares to God, if you just have faith, if you pray harder, if you pray more, if you read scripture, that tends to be discouraging to people who are struggling with fear because it feels, uh, it doesn't, they've tried that and they haven't found that to be helpful. And that's why I think those other three are all really critical steps. But in addition to those three, and the, and the thing that we have as people of faith that I think is really important is our faith. It is our, and I mentioned in the book, long before we had Xanax and Zoloft to deal with anxiety and panic. We had prayer and we had trust in God and we had the capacity, you know, uh, uh, looking at scripture and reading scripture. We had meditation. Those things are really important, those practices. And I, I tell folks who are not relig- particularly religious, it takes as much emotional energy and imagination to imagine the worst possible outcome for the things you're worried about as it does to imagine that there really is a God who's walking with you who has the capacity to force good from evil and who uh, will not let go of your hand no matter what. And so if you can begin to imagine that or image that, and you know, sometimes when you use the word imagination and faith and people think you're saying that the whole, that God is imaginary and you're just imagining this because it helps you feel better. And I'm like, no, that's not it. It's that God gave you an imagination and your imagination is meant to picture things that you can't see, which if you think about the classic definition of faith in Hebrews, Faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the substance of things not seen. And so faith and imagination go hand in hand in terms of imagining God, imagining the things you read in Scripture are true, imagining that God really is with you. And I think back, I was talking on a secular radio program about this and trying to help them make sense of this so it wasn't just easily dismissed as, oh, yeah, you're a pastor. Uh, of course, you're going to say that. And I said, you know, I, th- I think back to Dr. Martin Luther King. 
when uh, he answered the phone one night at midnight, he was, uh, this was in the late fifties, if I remember correctly, maybe the early sixties, it was the late fifties, answered his phone at midnight and there was somebody on the other end, on the other end threatening to kill him and his family. And he got off the phone and he'd already been experiencing a lot of opposition and, and this kind of thing happening regularly. And he began to pray and he said, I can't do this anymore, God, I just can't. And he said he was ready to give up. And then he felt this voice speaking to him saying, you know, telling him not to give up, telling him to, to continue to fight for, to march for justice and righteousness. And he felt the strength over, you know, coming up. And I've thought many times, what would have happened if Dr. King had not turned to prayer at midnight that night in his kitchen, but instead had just given up? Wow. And so somewhere when we pray, you know, things change. And, and I, I mentioned, it's, and it's just as praying, it's imagining God's presence with us. So in the Bible, there's over 400 references to fear and anxiety and terror. There are 140 references that say something to the effect of don't be afraid, fear not, don't be afraid. And when you look at those, they're almost always followed by these words, for I am with you. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. And so I think about, uh, you know, Isaiah 41.10 is a great example. Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be afraid, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Or, of course, the 23rd Psalm, even though I walk through the darkest valley or the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. When we internalize that, and so in the book, I, I talk about some spiritual disciplines that help us to be able to, to internalize it, to, to allow it to sink in and, and shape our imagination. And, and even in the end of the book, uh, 31 daily scripture readings for people to read before they go to bed as they're, as they're wrestling with fear or to meditate upon. But as we do that, we find the fear begins to dissipate when we sense God's presence walking with us, no matter what happens. And, and ultimately, you know, we think about Easter and Easter is, I'm convinced God's response to the human condition are, you know, the pain and the brokenness in our world. And also, you know, ultimately our fear of sickness and death. And God is saying, hate and evil, sin and death will never have the final word. And when we trust that, that plays a role in helping us find what Paul described as a peace that passes all understanding to guard our hearts and minds. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, I have a couple more questions to ask you, Adam, sure. but we're going to take a quick break and then we'll come right back. Hey friends, we'll get right back to the podcast, but I wanted to let you know if you want to know more about anything that I've done, well, not anything, but my books, my blog, the other podcast episodes, head over to steveweens.com and you can find everything you need. Also, if you want to support me on patreon.com, just go to patreon.com slash thisgoodword. And if you support me for as little as $2 a month, you'll get lots of benefits, fun, fun stuff. And lastly, I want to let you know about a really interesting uh, opportunity that, that is for you if you are a writer and you've never been published, but you want to be published. Maybe you have an idea for a book, but you don't know if it's viable. Maybe your manuscript is almost done, but you don't know how to get it in front of publishers. Uh, maybe you've heard about a book proposal, but you have no idea how to write one. And you wish someone in, in the industry that knows what they're doing would like help you, give you a critique of your query letter, uh, and help you get your work in front of publishers. Well, I think if that's you, you want to check out Author School. 
Uh, it, it, the instructor is an agent who's been in the industry for so long. Her name's Rochelle Gardner, and she is amazing. And you can find out all about it, how to enroll, what it offers, and all that good stuff just by going to authorschool.com slash love slash Steve Weens. That's authorschool.com slash love slash Steve Weens, and they will get you set up. Okay, now let's get back to the podcast. Adam, this has been so fun uh, to be with you. A couple of other questions. These are related to fear as well, but I know you're a leading voice for the reconciliation and renewal movement in the churches. So how do you see churches trapped in fear as it relates to fully embracing their LGBTQI plus brothers and sisters? Yeah, so for pastors and for church leaders, there is, you know, there's several fears. One is that in any given congregation, you have people all over the map in terms of where they stand. Hopefully, if you've been a good shepherd, you're in a congregation where you've shepherded your people to love and welcome everyone. But loving and welcoming everyone is different than somebody saying, and I believe somehow that, you know, God is okay with gay and lesbian people being married. So in almost every church, you've got people who say, Okay, I'm okay with them being married in the civic arena, but not in the church. I'm, I don't think I, you know, some people say I, I love the people, but I think that God doesn't, you know, will for people to be married who are in the same sex or the same gender. And so you've got some folks who are there, and you've got other folks who are fully affirming, and they're like, no, listen, my, you know, I, I, I can't imagine that God looks at my child who's gay and says, no, I don't want you to have somebody to share the, you know, share your life with. And so, re- I think that part of the fear we feel as pastors when it comes to talking about these things is we know what it's like to get the anonymous letters from people who are mad at us and leaving the church. We know what it feels like to have people who you loved and you were, you know, they were key leaders in your church say, I can't believe that you would even say that. I, I can't stay in this church. So it's much easier for us to be silent, you know, than to, and, and to find some ways to sort of try to keep the peace than it is to say, I think we have to talk about this. And as we talk about this, we have to talk about uh, human beings and how God looks at these human beings. We also have to talk about the text of the Bible and what we do with these scriptures that that speak in this way. And so I think there's a lot of fear related to just finally having the conversation. Uh, and I personally, you know, over the years, I've lost plenty of members of the church and it it's painful. And it's painful when a whole lot of them leave at the same time. Yeah, yeah. And so you've got to figure out what's the, how do you have, how do you help your congregation members have this conversation? And you know, a book wrote, I wrote several years ago uh, called Making Sense of the Bible was in part about doing that. It was a, you know, for most people, the question really, the debate, if they're on the more traditional side, is they love the Bible and they believe that the Bible teaches this and you have to see this this way because of these handful of passages. So the underlying conversation, for them, it's not that they don't love gay and lesbian people. It's that this is how I read the Bible and I can't, nobody's helped me see the Bible any differently than this. And because I think this is what the Bible says, now I think it's about whether I'm going to give in to the cultural norms or whether I'm going to be you know, faithful to God who's calling us to be countercultural. Yeah. And it's only when we begin to look at the Bible, you know, maybe with new eyes to say, okay, what is the Bible exactly? How was it written? How was it canonized? What's the, what's the nature of the text? And then are there things in the Bible that we have already looked at and said, okay, I know that's what the Bible says, but I don't think that really captures the heart and character of God. And everybody has done that. You yeah. know, the New Testament did that when it came to the Old Testament. So the Apostle Paul 
you know, part of why many Christians struggled with him in the first century was he was saying you didn't have to be circumcised. Well, the Bible is clear you did. Before, yeah. the, before the law of Moses, it said you had to be circumcised. And, uh, and, and, you know, a whole host of things like that, what you did with various portions of the law, and Paul's setting it aside where other Jewish Christians were saying, no, you have to obey the law. We're having those same, you know, challenges today when it comes to how we read our text. But we find the early church already had wrestled with this to some degree. And, uh, and so, you know, looking at the fact, you know, when it comes to slavery, over 250 passages in the Bible that would seem to affirm slavery as an acceptable practice in the eyes of God. And yet today we look at this and say, no, this is not, you know, we don't believe that a human beings owning another human, human being is the will of God. And we can find things in the text of the Bible that point us in that direction. But we have an overwhelming preponderance of scriptures that would say, maybe this is okay in the eyes of God. So yeah. we've, or, you know, women in ministry and a whole host of other things, we've come to a place where we already wrestle with the text some, and Jesus wrestled with the text. You know, when you read, you heard that it was said of old, but I say unto you. So being clear about the nature of scripture, that it is, you know, it is a book that was, or it wasn't a book, it was a whole series of documents written over a three, you know, at least a 2000 year period of time, predominantly over about a 1200 year period of time, that that was written by human beings, God somehow breathed on them, in them, speaks through this text when we read uh, Paul talking about the inspiration of, of Scripture. But even what that means is subject to some debate. What, what, was, what did Paul mean by the word inspired? And, um, and so when we begin to wrestle with this and we begin to look at how God speaks through the text, we come to a place where we can say, there's room for us to at least ask questions of the text, for us to go, what was the historical context? What was the setting? So what I've found is, that's an important conversation to have. And when you can start with that conversation, then you can move into, um, you know, the broader conversation about how does God look at his children who are gay and lesbian and what's, what should be the, you know, should the church's role be? But a lot of fear related to that, a lot of fear about losing members, a lot of fear about, um, you know, are we, have we missed the mark? Are we, on the one hand, are we, you know, capitulating to a culture? On the other hand is the fear of, are we, are we, treating people as second class in the church who God loves dearly and doesn't want to be treated as second class. And so on both sides, there's some measure of fear. And, um, yeah, so I think, I think there's that, that's one of the many fears that, that Christians wrestle with within the church, church leaders wrestle with. Yeah. So well said. And I, I absolutely agree that it's a matter of how we view the Bible. And that's, that's really what it gets down to because, uh, when one side says this is clearly what the Bible says, then, as you pointed out, there are so many other areas where it, the Bible seems to be just as clear about things that yeah. we are already way past. Um, right. And so that's a big one. Um, another question that's related is how does fear get in the way of racial reconciliation these days? Yeah. So, you know, when we think about race uh, and prejudice, and this is a whole section of the book is a section called fear of the other. Uh, when we think about uh, prejudice. Prejudice is largely fueled by fear. So I, I think back, uh, I, I mentioned uh, we had Clarence Jones, one of Dr. King's close associates, speak in worship this last weekend. And I asked him to describe what was going on in Birmingham, Alabama in 1963 when Dr. King led the protests there. And he described, you know, going into a department store. I mean, this is just one small example of the segregationist policies. Uh, if you went into a department store and you were African-American and you tried on a hat, if you tried it on, you had to buy it. Wow. So you couldn't try it on and then 
hand it back. You better know what size you were wearing before you tried it on. If you were white, there was no problem. You didn't have to buy it if you tried it. But if you were black, you had to buy it or shoes or, you know, a host of other things. So what was that about? Or the separate drinking fountains or separate bathrooms. So separate drinking fountains. Why did blacks have to drink out of one drinking fountain and whites of another? And it would seem to me that largely that's based upon irrational fears of the other person. So prejudice is largely built around that. If you think back to Nazi Germany, what people, you know, what was stirred up among the German people was a fear of the Jewish people. And that was a latent fear that had been there for a long time with the pogroms that had happened in the, you know, in, in uh, hundreds of years before. So, so there's a fear of the person who's different from us. And part of that fear, sometimes it's a fear I could be hurt. Maybe you're a threat. And this is interestingly enough, you know, human beings are the only animal species that I can think of whose primary fear is others in the same species. So if you think of all other animals, they fear other animals and that they might be prey to the to these other predators. We fear our fellow human beings. And if somebody, the more different somebody is from us culturally, the di more different they dress, the more different the color of their skin or the language or their religion, the more anxious we feel about them. And it's a, maybe a very low level fear for some and a much higher level fear of others. And I'll tell you, this is not just people who are, uh, I mean, I, I think about there are places that I might travel in parts of the country where you've, you know, posting Confederate flags around and, you know, my house is protected by Smith and Wesson and whatever else. And I might feel some anxiety about people who maybe are very different from me in that regard. You know, uh, right, we right. naturally feel that fears, fears, uh, equal opportunity, you know, device. So, um, so I think when it comes to racial reconciliation, part of what we have to do is we have to fear dissipates when we get to know somebody who's different from ourselves. Yes. So the more time we spend with somebody, the less afraid we are and the more like we become, the more similar we are. And so whether that's our Muslim neighbors or it's, uh, it has to do with, uh, you know, different ethnicities. So at church of the resurrection, we have a, uh, major emphasis on what we call allies for racial justice. And we're partnered with the largest predominantly African-American church in Kansas city. And we're looking at ways that we are building relationships between people in our two congregations. And in the process of building relationships, I no longer, I, I see when I, when I think of somebody who's of a different race, I think of them in the light of my friend, yeah. not in the light of some news story I saw or something else. And that begins to address our fears. It's the getting to know somebody, spending time with them that changes things. I agree. That is that is good. And I think that's just one of the only ways to do it. That is one of the only ways to do it is to uh, become friends with someone that you're afraid of, uh, that threatens you, um, because our, the amygdala, <laughs> fight or flight, yep. tends to rule when we uh, keep ourselves isolated with just the people that are exactly like us. Well, uh, Adam, we are we are out of time. This was so good. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time to answer some questions and talk about your book. No, I was just say it was a pleasure. I really appreciate having me on your program. And I'll, I'll mention one other thing too. The book is, of course, a trade book for people just to be able to purchase and read. And I hope people will. But we also designed it uh, so that local churches could use it as a churchwide emphasis because. A, for a lot of people in the community who are not involved in church, fear is a big issue. So when the church talks about fear, it's likely that some of those folks might actually show up at church. Yeah. And B, because so many people in the church are dealing with fear. So in addition to the book, there's a DVD we put together with five sessions. 
and I interviewed a, a Vanderbilt neuroscientist. I interviewed, interviewed a, a Fortune five or Fortune one hundred CEO. I interviewed a uh, Bishop Will Willeman, who wrote a little book on fear of the other several years ago. A family counselor, and also my wife, who wrestled with panic and anxiety. Yeah. So there are sessions uh, for small groups to use. There's a leader's guide. There's a children's component to help children uh, really practice these same things when it comes to fear and also a youth component. So in addition to the book, which I hope people, your listeners will pick up, there are other components to help churches do this together as a congregation and in a way that helps their people live with courage and hope, even in uncertain times. And is there a website where people can dive into those, uh, those resources? Yeah, they can find those resources and, and more at uh, adamhamilton.org. Um, they can also find the full array at cokesbury.com. Um, there's uh, if they search there, and really they should be able to find most of those resources at any place they buy books, but uh, or at least on a website where they buy books. But the uh, but most of them, all of those resources are available at cokesbury.com, and uh, you can link to them at adamhamilton.org. Great. Well, I will put those links on the show notes, everybody. Um, adamhamilton.org, and again, the book is called Unafraid: Living with Courage and Hope in uncertain times. Uh, thanks again, Adam. This was really, really fun for me uh, to hear your wisdom and just to get to know another uh, another pastor who's in it with me. So, so good. I felt the same. Thank you. It was great talking to you today. Have a great day. All right, my friend. Grace and peace.